in Providence. As Cynthia just said, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 2 today. Last week we looked at the first half of Ephesians chapter 2. Hunter Hambrick brought a sermon last week on that first, those first 10 verses. And this week I will be preaching on the last half of the chapter. As I mentioned the last time that I spoke here, there, were, there are um, some intimidating factors at play when you go to preach out of Ephesians. Because it's so deep. On one level, it's simple. We talked about this. It's meant to be understood by everyone. These were relatively new believers that this letter was written to. But because this is the wisdom of God, it is also multifaceted and deep. And you can go really deep. And it is hard to preach a sermon, one sermon, on this much scripture, this much wisdom. But I will do my best this morning. Uh, I say that because... We could dive deep on verses just 11 and 12 and spend a couple of weeks there and then the next couple of verses and the next couple of verses. But I'm going to just take one strand that I see here and primarily preach a sermon around the application of this text. Does that make sense? So uh, we're just going to talk about one general theme that I see woven through here that I think as a pastor, it's my responsibility to take what Scripture is saying and make it relevant to our daily lives. And I think that this text is highly relevant and applicable to our culture in which we all live. We live in one of the most polarized settings in our nation's history. A number of historians would say, actually, this is not as polarized as we've ever been. Some would say that it is, but many would say that it's not. It was, it was more polarized, for example, leading up to the Civil War. And we are not, to my knowledge, on the brink of an actual, literal civil war. Um, it was more polarized even before that at times, where you had people like shooting each other, and it was just crazy. Uh, politicians doing duels and all this stuff. We're not seeing that today. Nobody's fighting to the death in Washington, D.C. that I'm aware of. But we are polarized. We are very polarized. It is... I mean, conversations on almost anything out there right now are toxic, heated, ugly, angry, and it's even in the church. This is true. And I think what we see here is the means for the church to intentionally engage this culture without giving in to the polarization. This is how we as a church together... We're doing this together, can engage our culture. And I want to start out with just a little graphic here. I borrowed this from John Tyson uh, several months ago, and it has stuck with me ever since. And he borrowed it from somewhere else, and so it's not original to either of us. Uh, and it is the window of tolerance, and hopefully I can get this to work. There we go, yes. All right, uh, just bear with me here. Okay, I can make that bigger. Let me make that bigger. It's not doing it. All right, well, you might have to just do this. Give me one idea here. There we go. 
that's going to work. Trust me. There we go. There we go. Yes. All right, this is the window of tolerance. Okay, so this is a, a tool that psychologists use, and it has to do with when you're feeling stressed out, you, you are pushed outside of your window of tolerance. Hopefully most of your life, you feel like you're inside your window of tolerance. You can tolerate difficult circumstances, challenging conversations, bullies if you're in school. You can, hopefully you learn, you're learning to tolerate those things, but occasionally you get pushed outside that window of tolerance. And when you get pushed outside your window of tolerance, you're gonna respond in a couple of different ways. First, you're going to be tempted to move above your window of tolerance into, or into anxiety. If you'll bear with me one more second here, here we go. All right, so this center line, healthy engagement. This is differentiation, this is your window of tolerance. This is where we wanna stay and we wanna be here. You'll see down below this arrow of time. This is representing as we move forward throughout our day, we wanna stay right there, differentiated, we're present here, grounded, flexible, able to forgive, proactive, thinking, feeling, we're at peace. This is where we wanna be. Something comes up though, and we can immediately get moved into what's called hyperarousal or anxiety. This is where fight or flight kicks in. Somebody says the wrong thing or does the wrong thing, or you get a flat tire on the highway. You can get pushed into anxiety. Now you're outside your window of tolerance. This, is, this results in increased reactivity, intrusive imagery, flashbacks, disorganized thinking. This is where some PTSD can get triggered if you've got trauma in your background. You can get pushed up into fear and anxiety. And this is also where anger shows up a lot of times. Now, that's if you're getting pushed up outside your window of tolerance. If you get pushed down outside your window of tolerance, hypo arousal, this is apathy. This is an immobilization response. You feel numb, depressed, shutting down. You're passive here. You're withdrawing and you feel shame. The culture in which we live desperately wants to push you outside of your window of tolerance. That's what this culture wants for you. That's what this polarized culture wants. They either want to entice you and draw you up into anger and anxiety, or they want to shame you and push you down into anxiety's twin sister, depression, apathy. If they can draw you out and make you angry, you're fighting with them just like the rest of them, and you don't look any different as a Christian. You're just as angry, and you're as bitter and fighting and mad. If they can silence you, they win too. If the culture can silence you, you withdraw in shame. Your message, your viewpoint is silenced, marginalized, and you're pushed out of the conversation. And that is neither of those places is where God has called us as a church, as a body of believers to be. He has called us to operate right here in healthy engagement within our culture. And if you look at the life of Christ, you see this. You see him being tempted to explode on people. In fact, sometimes at one point his disciples were like, can we just call down fire from heaven on these people? And Jesus said, no. What is that? That's somebody who has moved out of their window of tolerance and is ready to light the place on fire. Right? You have, I'm sure you can see in, in the life of Christ, just 
resignation where he's weeping over a city and he's saying, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have me. He's being tempted to withdraw and be passive, but he doesn't give in to the temptation on either side. Throughout his life, especially in arguments with theological leaders of his day, somehow he masterfully stays engaged in the conversation and brings new light to the conversation, a new way of thinking about whatever is being argued about. Now, if you're like me, this is how your normal day will go. You start out here. If you happen to be reading your Bible, you're right here. You're in your window of tolerance. The kids get up and start making messes, and you start climbing up outside this window of tolerance, but then you go to work, and something happens, and you get up here, outside your window of tolerance. You're anxious, or you're angry, and then you continue. You, you finally talk yourself back down, and then it happens again, and you're like, forget it. I'm out, and you're just like, this is worthless. This can happen like on Facebook or on social media. You're like cruising along here, and then you see a comment that somebody made, and you're like, that's stupid. And so you decide to start arguing the comment, and it gets nowhere, but you get angrier and angrier, and then finally you're like, this is going nowhere. And so you just kind of, I'm done. I'm taking a social media fast, everybody. And you're just like coasting in apathy. This is how we often live. We are invited as a family, as a church, to actually stay right here engaged with our culture, not retreating into silence, and not joining in the polarization and fighting. In fact, there are few things more harmful to the witness of the church than to see this up here come down into the church and to see this uh, anger and fighting and bitterness come down and be represented here, or to see this apathy. It's all going to burn, forget it, let's withdraw and be on our own. Both of those responses harm the witness of the church. And we as a church are called to engage, to stay present and engage and be winsome witnesses I didn't even talk to you, Val, and you preached my, or not Val, Lon. I see Val, here's Lon. I didn't even talk to you, and you're preaching my sermon in the back. We're to shine like lights, and we can't shine like lights if we're crashing to the ground in anger like meteors, or we're just withdrawing, like Jesus said, putting our light under a basket. We're called to shine, and Paul is going to tell us here how we can do that. What is the hope for us to shine and to remain within this window of differentiated, healthy, God-honoring engagement? Cynthia, you can go ahead and switch that off now. That is my one and only slide. I never used them. You kind of know why now. (laughs) Join me in Ephesians chapter 2. Join me in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to see that the, the path to a healthy engagement for the church within our culture is to remember who you were, to remember now who you are in Christ, and then to realize what you are to be doing, or what I should say we are to be doing, because this whole letter is written to us, not me, primarily. It's written to us, what we are to be doing. So if we remember who we were and realize who we are, we can start to realize and move out into the purpose for which we've been created. So first, we need to remember our plight. In verse 12, it says this, remember, remember. And for, this is the second time he says the, verse, the word remember. Verse 11, he says it too. Therefore, remember. 
He's opening this section up in light of what he just said in the first half, in light of all these great and glorious gospel truths in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. Remember those truths. God loved you with a great love, he said. God made you alive together with Christ, he said. God seated you in the heavenly places, he said. God intends to lavish his infinite kindness on you for all time. And all of this is simply a gift freely given to you by grace. And lastly, he said, you are the masterpiece of your father created to bring life and light in the midst of a world lost in death and darkness. And because of all of these things, Paul says, because of all of this, therefore, remember. And what does he want us to remember? First, remember your plight. In verse 12, he gives us five things that, were really, that are really bad news for us. Verse 12, five things. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Five pieces of really, really bad news for us. Now, he's writing to primarily here a Gentile audience, and this is actually a very diverse Gentile audience. Ephesus was a port city. Think New York City. So this is made up of all sorts of different nationalities, ethnicities, races, and he's lumping all of them together as Gentiles, the uncircumcised, versus the Jews who were circumcised. And he's saying there was, a, there was a division between the two of you. And before God made you alive, Gentiles, you were alienated from this group of people over here. Both of you, you were at odds with each other, you were enemies. And he's going to zero in now on his Gentile audience. What did that mean for them? First of all, you were separated from Christ. Well, now to the average person brand new to the faith, who didn't know Christianity at all. That means nothing. That doesn't matter to me. But these are not brand new Christians. They're recent converts, most of them. But they know enough to know that they have found Christ and that Christ is their hope, that Christ is the Messiah. He is their deliverer. They have renounced their former gods. They had many They've renounced them as insufficient to deliver them, and they have embraced Christ as their deliverer. And what Paul is saying is, before God made you alive in Christ, you had no one coming for you. There was no one coming for you. You were on your own. And they knew it. They knew it. They knew that their gods were insufficient. They knew that they were hit and miss. They could throw up an offering and hopefully that God would respond, but he or she might not. They might be too busy sleeping around. They knew that they couldn't trust in these deliverers, and when they found Christ, they were so relieved. I have found my deliverer. And Paul says it's going to be very important for you as a church to remember that at one point in your life, you had no one coming for you. You had no deliverer. Secondly, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, what does that mean? Some say that that's primarily political. Other theologians say it's not primarily political. But here's the general idea of what that means. Nobody at this time in Ephesus was sitting there longing to be part of Israel. Just like nobody here in Denver is saying, or maybe not nobody, but most people in Denver, I'm not sitting here saying, man, I wish I was not an American citizen. I wish I was an Israeli citizen. 
Nobody is, I'm not saying that. In Ephesus, they weren't longing to be Israelites. They weren't. So why is Paul saying this? Well, just like without Christ, no one was coming for you. These folks understood scripture. They had begun, I mean, if you read Acts, you know what the early church looked like. They were meeting together in each other's homes, right? Devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine, reading the word. The word was being publicly read to them. They were taking it home in their minds, discussing it, building their lives around God's revealed revelation. This, the Old Testament. Now, if you've spent any time reading the Old Testament, you have to acknowledge that what Israel had with God was a special thing. Something that even though there are those who would say we are a Christian nation, or at least we're a Christian nation, America has never experienced the sort of relationship with God that Israel experienced nationally. We never have. We've never had that. We have never gone to war and said, you know what, let's hold back and just let God fight this one for us. (laughs) We've never done that. We never have. And so we can recognize, even as new Christians, as we start to read the word, we can recognize there is a special relationship between God and his chosen people, Israel. And I don't know how, necessarily, if I'm a new believer, I don't know how, but I want to get in there. I want to be part of that. Rome isn't offering me that, right? I want to be part of that. And that's where, that's where the Ephesian believers were. They had understood, they're, they're exploring the word, they're understanding this, and Paul is saying you had no part in that. That relationship was reserved for this people, and before Christ you had no part in it. It's really bad news because you're on your own again. At least, sort of, I mean, you're left to Rome, and what's Rome really going to do for you? Nothing. Nothing. Okay, second piece of bad news. Here comes the third piece of bad news. Strangers to the covenants of promise. So they're reading the Bible together. They're learning scripture. And they're going through the entire Old Testament, and they're seeing all of these promises from God to his people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Everything here. And they're taking great hope and great joy in those promises. The 23rd Psalm, as one example. The Lord's a shepherd? The Lord's a shepherd to me? I can walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I can, I can deny my false gods at penalty of death here in Rome. And I have a shepherd who will walk that with me and carry me out on the other side. Promises, all of these precious promises throughout Scripture. And Paul is saying, none of these, none of these applied to you. You had no promises. You had no covenants. God didn't promise to do anything for you. He promised to do these things with his people and through his people, but you had no part in all of these glorious things. No part. That's bad news. Fourth, if that's not bad enough, you also had no hope. (laughs) So you were separated from Christ. No one's coming for you. You have no deliverer. You were part of an inferior country. Imagine saying that to a typical American today. You were part of an inferior nation. You had no country worth hoping in. You had no promises, and you had no hope. It is dark for us as Gentiles, right? Dark. This is bad news. And then lastly, without God in this world. Man, I mean... 
I was raised in the church. I can't really imagine, I can't imagine what it would be like to be in this world without God. I, I know some of you can because some of you grew up outside the church. I, I was raised by a pastor, and so I, was, I grew up in the church. I can't imagine. I know some of you can. What is it like to be in this world without God? A mess. I mean, what are your best hopes? To get the justice system right? Are you going to do that tomorrow? To get the right person in office? Are you, are you going to go out and do that tomorrow? All of this stuff, if you're understanding it, is moving you outside your window of tolerance. <laughs> it's moving you into anxiety as you remember what life was like before Christ. No deliverer. No country. No hope. No God. No promises. Nothing. And just like in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul's going to use a very important conjunction here and say, but, but. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's going to go on, and I'm going to summarize the next few verses, but he's going to say, you Gentiles, we as Jews, we called you the ones who were far off. We were close to God. We were his chosen people. We were the favorite you guys were far off. You were the ones who were far off. But now, because of Jesus, you have been brought near. You have been brought near. Just saying that was enough for the religious leaders in Paul's day to want to kill Paul. Just saying that could get Paul stoned. Just saying that this gospel of hope, these promises, are not just for Israel. They're for the world. Those were fighting words for Paul to say. And he's saying them to Ephesus. You were all brought near. Whether you're here in Ephesus from Egypt or anywhere else, uh, Paul talks about the barbarians in Colossians. Remember where he says there, there's no uh, Scythian or barbarian, I believe is how he says it, in Colossians? No matter what your background is, no matter what your country of origin was, you are all being called and brought near to the household of faith in Christ. Then he goes on and he says, this is, so we, we remember our plight. Secondly, we rejoice in our position. Paul's going to turn everything on its head in verses 13 through 20. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the second time now that he's referenced the blood of Christ. Earlier in verse 7 of chapter 1, he talks about the blood of Christ as well. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's a, there's a lot there. There's a few sermons there. But Paul is saying, Jesus came. There was a wall separating Jews and Gentiles. And Jesus came and obliterated this wall so that he could take both groups of people and make them one. He obliterated 
this polarizing divide and is expecting them now to come together and live together as one. And it's so important to him that he shed his blood to do it. Now, what walls do you have around you and those people out there? Actually, let's just keep it inside the church for now. If you're anything like me, you've got several walls. I have a wall here between me and Christian Trump supporters. I look down my, I do, I look down my nose at them. I think to myself, they can't really know Jesus the way that I know Jesus. They can't really be following him the way I'm following him. And I've allowed this wall to build up. I've even, I've, I have built this wall here at times in some of my sermons by mocking people who support Donald Trump. I have allowed politics to build a wall between me and my brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus killed, by going to the cross and dying, Jesus killed that kind of hostility. He killed it. There should be no walls in the church dividing us especially with inferior things like politics, unless politics truly is our ultimate thing. If politics is truly our ultimate thing, then we're going to give our lives to that because that's our only hope. And then we're right back to where we were, where we have nobody coming that can save us. There is no deliverer. We've got a president. Think through all of the issues out there right now that are dividing you from Christians who disagree with you. Because Paul is primarily writing this for the church, and he's saying the apologetic that the church needs, to quote Lon, is not whining and arguing, complaining. The apologetic that the church needs, is un- or that the world needs, is the unity of the church amidst great diversity. There was a tremendous amount of diverse opinions in the church at Ephesus, on everything. You name it. Politics, sure. Juan was just talking to me this morning about how just, I mean, just put yourself in the shoes of a slave in Ephesus who's just come to Christ. And now if you refuse to offer sacrifices to your master's God, you can be killed. If you refuse to make yourself available sexually to your master, you can be killed. There were all sorts of real life decisions here at stake. And Paul is saying, you, church, you need to show them something completely different. There's enough bickering and infighting and hatred out there. You in here are called to something different. And so what is it exactly that we have been called to? What is our position that we should be rejoicing in? It's in verse 18. Actually, the first one is verse 13. You've been brought near. We talked about that. Secondly, you've been reconciled to others, verses 14 and 15. So this is horizontal reconciliation. He has made peace where there was no peace. There should be no peace, you would think, if you're looking at the news between Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter. There should be no peace. But Jesus has made peace. And we know he's not only limiting this to Jewish 
versus Gentile believers because in Galatians and Colossians, he's going to expand this to male and female, to free and slave. He's going to expand this everywhere. He's going to say wherever there's a wall dividing brothers and sisters in Christ, the blood of Christ has killed the wall of hostility. He preached peace to you who are far off. Through him now, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We didn't have that before. Now, because of Christ, we have access to the Father. Right now, we just sang about this. Right now, you have access to your Father in heaven. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens. You're brought into a superior citizenship. Your citizenship is no longer primarily in the nation in which you were born. Your primary citizenship is the kingdom of heaven. You have a place now in God's kingdom, and there is a king. You are not, as Americans, fundamentally part of a democracy. You are fundamentally part of a monarchy. You have a king And even if it doesn't look like it at times, there is a king, he is on his throne, and he has welcomed you into his kingdom. You have a country now. You have a country. You have a home here. Even when you look around and it feels like, I don't don't belong here, you have a kingdom, a country, and it gets better. Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The end of verse 19. Not only do you have a place in the kingdom, now because of Christ, you have a place at the table of the king. Yes, Jocelyn. Do you realize that? You have a place at the table, at the king's table. This is the end of Psalm 23, where David says, you spread a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and my cup overflows. You anoint my head with oil, and surely your goodness, your loving kindness, and your mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I didn't have that before Jesus. That promise was not mine before Christ. And now Christ came and gave it to me. And he gave it to people on the other side of these walls that we have built up in the church. It was so important to him that it cost him his life to abolish the walls, and he did it anyway, to end the polarization. The fellow citizens with the saints, this this piece is really important. We are part of a kingdom, so this is a death blow to apathy. So when the culture is trying to shame you and push you down and silence your views, that should actually remind you, no, I'm, I'm part of a kingdom. There are kingdom values that I'm called to represent well and advocate for. I'm called to do this. And so you can engage in conversations around abortion, around marriage, around any hot topic or hot button issue that is out there that is dividing people. You can bring a winsome gospel witness as a kingdom citizen. You are called to represent what the king has said on that issue. And you're not called, you're not called to be a jerk about it. 
You're not called to condemn others for their view that's different than yours. You're not called to be shocked that somebody wouldn't submit to the king because not everybody has submitted. But the good news is this king, the thing that makes this king different than all other earthly kings is he is not quick to anger. He actually loves the rebels. And that's good news for us because we used to be rebels. So we're not to respond with shock and disgust when people disagree with the edicts of our king. We're supposed to love them like he does and move out into the world and love and not shrink back. What happens to the love if you shrink back? Don't shrink back in shame. Reach out, discuss, reason, and love those who are disagreeing with you. And do not, for the sake of Christ, do not let that polarity find its way in here among us. Let's do this together. Whether you think we should have more guns or no guns, let's do this together. As brothers and sisters, you're called. You've been called to not let anything pull you apart. That's what it means to be part of the kingdom. But members of the household of God... This is a death blow to anxiety, to getting baited and pulled up into fighting. You don't need to. And anger and fear, you have no need to fear. You have a father who loves you with a perfect love, and perfect love casts out fear. You don't need to be made anxious by people who disagree with you or who hate the position that you might take. You don't need to be anxious because you're part of the family of God. Nobody can take that away from you. You are a son or a daughter of God, of the king. Nobody can take that away from you. And all the disagreement and all of the crises out there cannot take that away from you. You are secure. Before Christ, you were insecure. In Christ, you are secure. So you don't need to give in to anxiety and anger. You can remain right here and focused on loving your neighbor as yourself because you've been loved with a great love. So then what do we do? Realize, we need to realize our purpose. What is our purpose? And with this, we'll close in Ephesians to the end here. This is his conclusion. You're no longer strangers, you're fellow citizens, you're members of the household of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is your life's, our life's purpose together. This is what God is doing now. Now that he has broken the hostility, he has killed the hostility that could divide us. He's removed that, and he's made us all one body, one family in Christ. Now he is building us into a sure foundation, into a temple. Think of all of the other temples out there. Every one of them, every platform out there has cracks in the foundation. Every one. I can pick on any of them, and somebody will hate me for picking on any of them. So I, I'll just pick on any of them. So, 
Black Lives Matter has cracks in the foundation as a movement. It has cracks in the foundation. Blue Lives Matter has cracks in the foundation. The Democratic platform has cracks in the foundation. The Republican platform has cracks. Socialism has cracks in the foundation. Every single platform out there that people right now are fighting in is insufficient to save and is not compelling to the whole world. It's compelling to a select few. It's compelling to a select few. So the one I was poking at earlier, the Donald Trump platform, which I, I can't believe is still a thing, but it's a thing. That is, it is compelling to some people, and they're not crazy. Actually, some of my close friends are supporters of Donald Trump and will go to Trump rallies and love it, and their brothers and sisters in Christ. And I love them. They're not crazy, but it has cracks in that foundation. And some of us see the cracks and are like, I'm not going inside that temple that's being built to this man. Every one of the platforms that I just rattled off has similar cracks. And we can stand there and look at it and say, that is not compelling enough for me to give my life to that. Why? Well, because it's been built with hands. It's been built on the wisdom of man. It's been built by fallen men and women. It's not going to be perfect. And it's not what God is building with his church. You and I, individually, we have cracks. We have sin. We are not perfect. But when Jesus came and shed his blood, he sanctified us. He justified us. And now because of his blood, not because of my righteousness, because of his righteousness, God is able to take these stones and build a temple that is held together by the mortar of the blood of Jesus. Unified and strong, not because I'm strong, but because he's strong. And not because I'm sufficient, but because his blood is sufficient. This temple is supposed to be the thing, the structure that the world is longing for. And when they look in and see it, they should say, okay, that's stable. That's secure. That's the security I've been longing for. The stability I've been trying to find to build my life on. That's the witness we are to be in the world. And if we look as fractured as they do, we're like a house with structural problems, and nobody wants to buy a house with structural problems. I can tell you, as a realtor, we do inspections on houses, and if you see a giant crack running along the wall of the foundation, you leave, and you go look for a different house. You don't want to buy a house with structural problems. Why? Why don't you want to buy a house with structural problems? It is going to fall. Then you got to pay more money for it. It's really hard to build the future of your life there, right? And if that's what we look like, if we look as fractured as the rest of the world does, we are not compelling. And in fact, we're failing at the task that God has given us. He has called us not to get rid of the diversity, not to get rid of your viewpoints, but in spite of those viewpoints, come together. And that very action of coming together and linking arms together with people who believe differently than you on lesser matters is the winsome witness that the world is waiting for. That's what we're called to do. And that's how we stay together in healthy engagement within our culture, together. So that when you see me on Facebook 
going after somebody, you can say, hey, Josh. <laughs> Josh, you're getting outside your window of tolerance. Come on, man. You're, you are hurting the team. We need to rein that in, come back in. This is, this is what we're doing to one another. This is what it means to pursue godliness together. Hey, come on. Come on. Don't, don't let them silence you. Don't let them pull you up into fighting. Come together. Let's do this together. This is what the world needs right now from us. This is what they need. You're not going to argue them in. You're not going to complain them in. You are called together with me, with us, with one another to build, not to build. We're being built into a temple not made with hands that is sure and will stand the test of time forever. That is what the church is called to today. That's what we're called to this week. So as we go out of here today, I would challenge you to, lay, to look for these walls of hostility that are dividing you from other people and just pray through those things. Pray through them and say, God, I'm, I'm convinced of this thing, but it is a lesser idea than what Christ came to do. Help me, help me love the people on the other side of this divide and work for the unity of his body, this temple that he's building. This is what we've been called to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for ending, putting an end, putting to death the hostility that divides us. God, help us to embrace the peace. Who wouldn't want peace? Help us to embrace the peace that's been bought for us by the blood of Christ. And help us together to paint a winsome witness to the watching world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.